Hello podcast listeners, this is Travis with a quick content warning for this episode covering My Favorite Thing is Monsters, and this will also play before the next book club episode about that same graphic novel. My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris is a graphic novel that does depict violence against women and assault and sexual violence as well, in addition to just general topics of violence and I guess I would say gore since it is a murder mystery of sorts and that is depicted in various I mean frankly creative ways by the main character but it is depicted pretty clearly and regularly as always with our content warnings here I'm not going to timestamp anything because our discussions don't go in order of the story so it's difficult to say when these themes come up or these topics come up more in one segment than another it's just kind of a blanket warning for the entire podcast so if you're comfortable listening to us discuss those themes and topics in this episode and the next one then as always we hope you join us for that discussion if not then this might be one to skip or perhaps go research the book further before listening in and without further ado let's get to the episode Podcast, the only book club podcast that always recenters itself by taking a drug-infused, usually mushroom-infused trip through a graveyard. Got a mm-hmm. local graveyard here, Amanda, for that very purpose. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I grow my own. <laughs> you grow your own graveyard, or you grow your own <laughs> mushrooms? Those are I that is a mushroom. that might be the most frightening. That might be the most frightening <laughs> description of a graveyard I've quite literally ever heard. We gotta start spinning this into some fiction or something. We gotta start making some fiction. <laughs> I grow my own graveyard. Good Lord. Yes, yes I do. That's day bleak. by day. I don't, I don't even know what that implies. That's really sinister. <laughs> Fittingly sinister, I would say. I'll use that as a segue, as a jumping off point. Um, because we're going to be talking about a kind of disturbing mystery, perhaps a murder mystery book today called, graphic novel specifically, called My Favorite Thing is Monsters. We are, again, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. If you don't know what we are, we're a book club podcast that posts a episode every week breaking down a book that we have chosen. You have stumbled upon a book club episode today, so this will be an analytical deep dive into the first half of a book, which we'll discuss and talk about soon. We have social media accounts at Facebook and Instagram. That's at the Lightly Literary Podcast all one word so follow us there and you know give us a a like and a subscription on your podcast platform of choice we're up on most podcast platforms at this point so yeah that's our social plug follow us tell your friends etc we always appreciate that and as I mentioned, this is a book club episode. Today we'll be discussing My Favorite Thing is Monsters, which is a graphic novel by M.L. Ferris. This is a book that I chose that was based on a prompt that Amanda gave me. Um, as I mentioned, we're going to be breaking down and analyzing the first half of this today, which will require some careful description up front, because this book, in a loathsome decision, <laughs> my brain bre- <laughs> breaks when something like this is done, does not have page numbers, which I find infuriating. And also really doesn't have clear chapter breaks either. I think there's kind of an attempted, um, there's an attempt at that, but we'll talk about that later. At any rate, that's what we'll be up to today on the episode. Amanda, you chose the prompt for this. What was it? Uh, The prompt was a very simple one. Just choose a graphic novel. Yeah, yeah. And it's our first one on the podcast. Do you read a lot of graphic novels? Um, No, I mean, I've read like um, Persepolis by Marjane Satrapi. And Mm -hmm. the sequel to that, and I absolutely loved it. But that was, like, the Mm -hmm. only one aside from, like, anime. Uh, Not anime, but manga. Manga, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can't do manga because I cannot, I refuse to train my brain to flip the opposite direction and follow the pages in the opposite direction. I absolutely refuse. (laughs) Talk about American exceptionalism right there. I'm the worst. (laughs) But I'm like, I've tried maybe one of those and I was like, I just, I cannot do this. (laughs) I'm good. I'm just going to read the Americanized ones, I guess, or something. So no, what was the last graphic novel you did before this? It was Persepolis? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, That's that, pretty... the sequel to it, Persepolis 2. Yeah, that one breaks into academic circles, yeah. I think. It, it's considered literary. That and Mouse are the two that are often held up as sort of, here's something, you know, about the real world and international affairs and everything. And anyway, they're they're fantastical in some of their drawings and things, but it's all very grounded. So those are pretty mm-hmm. commonly held up. I started picking up my graphic novel consumption, I don't know, probably about a decade ago. It was definitely after college, though. I, I really didn't read any in college. I actually did what I did frequently, which is I took the syllabus for a class I couldn't take. Um, the college I went to offered one graphic novel class in the English department, and I just couldn't get it to fit. So I just took the syllabus and read some of those. And yeah, it was like Persepolis was on there, same with Mouse and a bunch of other things. I think Watchmen was on there, some other landmark <laughs> ones. So anyway, I've dabbled a lot more in them than, since then, and you gave me this prompt. It's the first time we've tried a graphic novel, so I guess we'll see how it goes. If this episode's yeah. a disaster, then <laughs> I suppose that is what it is. But I think we, I think most of the format we use, most of the analyses we do will actually hold up pretty well here i don't think i don't think we're going to be fish out of water so to speak unless you feel like we are no i think it'll be fine we we had talked about changing up the the format a little bit but i think that Mm -hmm. our format works well we we don't want to be like overly our our focus isn't necessarily on on the art aspect of the graphic novel but i think it'll come up exactly yeah. yeah, and it well, and it should come up, especially with this one. So I chose this book, let me end this rambling, but I did want to clarify, I chose this one out of a pretty big stack of ideas. I thought about picking a Marvel run just because Marvel's so popular, and we, I don't think we go out of our way to pick popular stuff, but I just thought that might be a nice way to get some new people interested maybe, but I felt strongly about this because it's more independent, the story of its publication is was more interesting, Emil Ferris. Um, lost the use of her legs after she got West Nile virus. And then during her hospitalization, she, I think, made a lot of this book. And it was kind of a, I I don't know if if by her standards, it was a slow plotting type of production, but I know it said she took about two days per page. And I think there's like, this is, I think, 700 pages or something. (laughs) So it's, I I feel like that's the number I saw on Wikipedia. At any rate, it just, it received a lot of reward uh, awards and it had kind of this fraught production and she had been through a lot to make it. And, Anyway, it was roundly praised. Um, The cover art alone was intriguing because it's done with ballpoint pens and kind of a... I don't, it's almost I don't, I don't can't think of a better word this is going to be me a lot today is just stumbling for adjectives to describe art I think <laughs> you know someone who, I don't know if you have any real formal training in talking about art well but I don't but it, it almost is kind of like an over articulated almost gaudy look but I that I really like though and it I think it works immaculately well for some of the topics that she's choosing I'm not sure if you reacted that way initially yeah, I I love the style. I thought that it was absolutely beautiful. It, it's it's kind of like what you would assume, um, like the older. It's not even like an older uh, comic style necessarily. It's very unique because the lines are not as thickly drawn as yeah, you see in yeah. some of the comics and stuff like that. So I I appreciated it, and also like when she uses um, 
when she draws other pieces of art, like classic art, it's just her skill is it's amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Those are some of the most enjoyable little kind of like tidbits or whatever breaks in this one. I think when I look at old graphic novels and comics, like basically before the eighties ish, that's a big, you know, generalization, but the art is just so, it feels very production focused in that it seemed like very assembly line. It all just kind of, I don't know. The lines just aren't that intriguing. It's a little chunky and simple. And I just think in the last 20 years, there's been a real explosion in the create that creative space. This, yeah, it just doesn't look like anything else. And again, I like gaudy, overdrawn. I those are both so negative. I wish I had a better connotative way to say it, but it's it's just very rich, I guess. And it's like you never know if when you flip the page, because she also kind of takes that away at times in the narrative and is like very spare and it's just quick little panels. But then you'll hit another page. I feel like every time Anka's profile is drawn, for example, there's like got to be a thousand lines in that in those plus yeah. probably more. <laughs> mm-hmm. So anyway, um, I think we've talked around the book enough. Let's get to it again. We'll be discussing the first half. Let's delicately describe that now. If you've been reading the graphic novel, I think we actually, or you chose a perfect stopping point because it's such a long chunk of the book. We are going to read from the beginning of this book or discuss from the beginning of the book to the end of Anka's tape recorder, which if you've read this book, that will make a ton of sense. If you have no idea what that means, then just keep reading if you don't want it spoiled. But you, I feel like that's a good enough description, right? Because that's like, it takes up like 100 pages, I feel like, or, you know, it's, it's very sure. long, I guess. So yeah. we read through, and if, and if the tape recorder, by the way, if you've read beyond that and the tape recorder comes up again, we don't know. Like, I hard stopped after the tape recorder segment. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's, I guess, what we can say without spoiling it. Do you want to describe it in any other way? Um, I also, like... The way that I thought that she was breaking up chunks of um, yeah, yeah the story is is the movie poster or not movie posters but the the recreations of the magazines the mm-hmm. horror magazines and so at the bottom of each of the horror uh, magazine uh, reproductions is a title. So, um, if you look at that, it's 1967, the year in review is the first one. And the one that we finished and did not go past is robotic hybrids of zombie land. Yeah. Yeah. Those I, well, anyway, let's get into the book club. I don't want to start spoiling things. (laughs) (laughs) I was immediately, I was see how, see how eager I am. I got to slow my roll here. I was like going to immediately jump on those, but anyway, let's get into the format here of the book club. I think we've preambled plenty so hopefully if you're still listening you're ready for this to be spoiled or you've been reading which would be amazing as we hope you always do um let's start with fill in the blanks amanda we like to begin with fill in the blanks just to get some discussion about the book going i'll throw mine to you first um though we both made once we'll answer both so uh, there's a birthday party in this graphic novel that is truly one of the moments of heartbreak despite all of the like profound much more grand human traumas in this book. This is going to be another one that I'm going to have to do a trigger warning for um, at the front, which isn't, that sounded weirdly critical. It's just like, we've been hitting these pretty trauma-filled books lately, I feel like. But anyway, (laughs) um, but I I really do feel like the birthday party was quietly maybe the most tragic part of the whole thing. So my fill in the blank was, what the worst or most awkward birthday party I've ever been to was blank. So take it away. Um. (laughs) Sad enough. I would say it was um, my my own birthday party in mm-hmm. sixth or seventh grade. Okay. Um, yeah. My parents were amazing and like love them so, so much. And they rented out this space, which was like definitely what everybody was doing at the time. 
And <laughs> so <laughs> this may come as a surprise to some of you, but um, I was not the most popular person in school. I <laughs> was a super nerd. Like, I mean, I was always reading. It's that manga. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's that manga, man. That's blame it on the manga. <laughs> so I was, I was always stuck in a book, and and like I was also really into um, computers and math. Uh, so I was um, getting pulled out of classes for um, experimental classes and stuff like that. <laughs> so mm. like I, I didn't really get along exceptionally well with a whole lot of people. I'm also like devastatingly shy, and so my. Mm. My, they rented out this huge space um, because dance parties were the thing, right? And um, I only had like my, I had two best friends at the time, and we had we invited a couple of people from our classes. So we had this giant space, and it was like maybe ten people there, and all the songs, like you know the the awkward middle school dance where like nobody really wants to dance because you're like, oh, that boy is like whatever. So it was like that, oh, yeah. and oh, yeah. <laughs> and then there was also like my mom was trying to like liven it up, so she had put out like these um, masquerade masks and stuff like that, and like people were like, "Oh, that's so uncool," just you know, super judgy. So yeah, middle school birthdays, you just can't. <laughs> at, when you get as a parent, when you get your kids into middle school, you have to hands off the wheel it with that kind of social stuff, and just be like, "I don't, I don't care how awful an idea the kid has. Like they're getting their own idea. Like I don't, because yeah. anything you try is not going to work. There's, yeah. you have, you cannot have a good idea. Definitionally, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it was super awkward and, and brutal. Yeah, that that's that's mine. How about At yours? At least a couple of people came, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, my friends came, um, but yeah, there were only like like four guys, and the rest were all girls. Like, <laughs> I, I my my memory of this that's actually not I, you know for certain middle school crowds that I could take or leave that I don't know I, <laughs> you can't get more than that many middle schoolers in one place. But I think by law that should be a law. <laughs> Just keep them separated, as the song goes. Uh, My only memory for this one, it'll be a quick one, because I feel like my birthdays have mostly been, you know, good to fine to great or whatever. But I I do have one memory that stands out. It was in high school. I think I was 16 or 18. It was, here's all I remember about it. And this is weird, because it wasn't that awkward or tragic, but it had a strange energy. It was, my mom and my brother were still around, so my brother wasn't in college yet. I think then it must have been my 16th birthday, which, you know, it's like your license year. It's supposed to be maybe Mm -hmm. a big deal, but like, I think we were just busy or I hadn't made a party or I just don't remember the circumstances, but it was kind of like nighttime came and they were just kind of like, well, what what are we doing then? And I was like, let's just go to Red Robin. It was, you know, I grew up in a small town, like a lot of chains, not, that was just kind of like a new place to go. And I just remember eating dinner and it was kind of like... I remember being actually like very contented, just kind of like, oh, this, you know, whatever. We get a decent, you know, it's like interesting meal and I'm here with my family. But I remember there was just kind of this energy of like, huh, this is like a disappointment. I don't know if either of them will remember it. I'm, maybe if they listen to this episode, they can tell, we can talk about it. Cause I don't, that's the only one I could really think of that my energy was not down. It was not awkward for me, but I think both of them thought like this should be a bigger moment or something, or like we should ah. be doing something more interesting or something. And so it was mm-hmm. just kind of like, 
maybe I'm not interesting, you know? <laughs> it's just kind of like, oh, I don't, this just seems okay to me. Like, I don't, I'm not going to complain. This, you know, food's pretty good and I, whatever. And so for my hometown, that was a, you know, pretty decent, quiet birthday with the fam. So I don't know. I've had, you know, I can throw a party for myself if I really need to. I, I didn't feel bad about that. But that was the only one that came to mind. So not nearly as bad as be, being stuck in an unheated apartment in a closet with no food. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'll take I'll take my <laughs> blessings. Red Robin's fine by me. W- won't hear a word out of me. They got unlimited fries, you know, whatever. It'll be a great time. I'll have a great time. They put, you know, they got breakfast mm-hmm. burger that has hash browns on it, people. What more do you want? Their their mushroom Swiss burger is my favorite. It's yeah, delicious. Yeah, see? And yeah, I grew up in a hometown of chain food, so it's just, I don't have that part of, I definitely go out of my way now to research local places, yada yada. I'm not a foodie, but I'll like, I try. The internet is vast with resources, so it's like I know what to, I know how to Google for stuff. But I'm not also above that. It's like, I'll, ha- I'll have a perfectly good meal there and not, and it'll be nice. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't, I just remember the energy was kind of weird. It was just kind of like, we should be doing something better than this, and we weren't. <laughs> I was just kind of like, this is fine. <laughs> anyway, kind of a funny thing. Um, how about for your fill in the blank? Much more related to the text. <laughs> yeah. Um, if Ferris, the author, were to imagine me as a monster, I think I would be blank because blank. Yeah. Um, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. I'll take this one away. Yeah. It's got to be Dracula for me, right? Pale guy. Mm. <laughs> kind of prefer the indoors. I don't. That I struggle with that because I actually really love doing things outside, but I prefer to do things outside that are like athletic or you know it's like i don't like to just go sit outside and like eat my dinner or have a drink i like to go outside to like go to play soccer or like go for a hike or uh, anyway but i do like indoor activities a lot love to read love to watch a movie just lay around whatever i could be a little moody i don't think i'm as like morose or i I hope i'm not quite as creepy as dracula is i don't think i don't (laughs) i don't think my sexual power dynamic energy would come off in the right way so i think that's the big part this would fall apart like i don't Mm want to keep a harem or whatever he does (laughs) i'm not really sure what's up with that guy but i could see myself i also do have like a real fixation on castles so i i could see myself kind of adopting that lifestyle living a little secluded kind of um i also though find hoarding space like that to be kind of grotesque so i don't know but i do think dracula is the pick for me that or maybe a yeti you know some kind of wilderness creature that just kind (laughs) of hangs out in a cold environment and just kind of you know maintains a little cozy hut or something heck yeah that sounds great (laughs) yeah not bad i would love to be drawn in her style as any of those things i feel like there was a dracula or two in the posters here the ones i the the posters have been uh, to me very like what's that idea sunk cost fallacy it's like i the effort that has gone into those is clearly so incredible and i'm like is this Mm -hmm. worth it like i they're they're a nice little amusement for like 10 seconds and then you're just kind of like i guess that doesn't really connect to anything i'm just gonna my reaction to those has not been that strong like it's cool to see art so fun and vibrant and then when it doesn't fully connect to the narrative i'm like okay i guess this is fine and then i move on Anyway, that's not been the most memorable thing, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I, I don't think I'll remember any of the covers. I'll just remember the idea of the covers, if that yeah. makes sense. Mm-hmm. How about for you, a monster? Um, I said that I would probably be drawn as Frankenstein's monster. Um, mm. People often like get it confused. Frankenstein was not the creature. Mm-hmm. The Frankenstein. Doctor. Yeah, he was the doctor. Also, he was a monster. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Um, so I would be Frankenstein's monster because I'm constantly following around my daughter. 
Right. <laughs> and Frankenstein's monster was always like falling around Frankenstein. Um, and my life is very much wrapped up in my daughter. Um, and so like my, my time to socialize is, you know, when we get to talk about books and <laughs> on, um, mm-hmm. when I get to play D and D Monday nights, um, right. it's, it's pretty much, pretty much my life. Um, who are the villagers not, not chasing you down then? Who's coming to kill you? <laughs> the friends that I've abandoned. Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but your daughter will defend you. Is, does that mean she's Frankenstein? I mean, I guess she has been the creator of my current life, right? The, yeah, the changes right. in in my life so far. So I think, so. yeah, she she would be um, a more benevolent, but just as controlling creator, right, Frankenstein. Right. Um, <laughs> but I would say that uh, Frankenstein's monster is, of course, very vengeful. Also, if you have not read Frankenstein, like you need to read Frankenstein. It's nothing. Get like on it. Those, or are you talking to me? No, just like people. Got it. <laughs> like Got our, it. The our listeners. listeners. Yeah. 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 Right. You guys need to read it. Um, so I wouldn't be vengeful. I, I would not be like, you know, I, I would be the, the creature before the cottage scene where he gets brokenhearted and stuff. Um, mm, <laughs> and yeah. of course, before he, you know, the murder stuff. So I would be the kind and gentle and learning creature, not the uh, murderous one. (laughs) Well, I I think this analogy holds up well. And frankly, I'm most pleased with this section or segment that you did not say, because I know your daughter had a birthday recently. I'm really happy you didn't say that that was the worst, most awkward birthday you've ever been to. I was, I was in the back of my mind, I was like, I knew it went well, but I was like, maybe that, maybe it, you know, if it went really poorly and she didn't tell me, then maybe that'll be, you know, an awkward thing to talk about. I feel like outdoor birthday parties are never going to be terrible. Kids just like throw some water on and throw some snacks on the table and play for hours. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're, they're the perfect age too. Like you pointed out so well, it's middle school when the, when the landmines enter the social landmines enter the equation. So that's, oh yeah, that's when you can really start blowing things up at the birthday. And again, in my (laughs) mind, that's when the parent just needs to be like, literally tell me what you want to do. I have no ideas. (laughs) I'm not doing it. I'm not planning anything. (laughs) You're going to make fun of every idea I have. So I'm not even going to try. Just tell Mm -hmm. me everything to do anyway let's move on to some text analysis that's a good we've given a good warm-up here let's talk about surprises pleasant or otherwise this segment is right there in the title we're just going to each pick out something that surprised us about the book so far i think this one offers plenty of surprises at least it did for me and i can't imagine for you someone who doesn't read as many graphic novels maybe it was quite surprising but why don't you take it away first amanda um one of the surprises that jumped out to me the most is that the narrative is told from a child's perspective. Um, especially since I looked at the cover and I thought that I, I didn't do any research on this book beforehand. So I was like, Oh, okay. There's like a monster in this person's eyes. My favorite thing is monsters. Maybe the narrator is this young woman. Um, right, and then like right. I started reading and I was like, what? <laughs> what? Um, and so the child's perspective and the author does really well with keeping that narrative style. I thought like some of her word choices, the descriptors, everything is definitely meant to be very juvenile um, and mm-hmm. um, like purposefully um, not not as insightful 
um, and, and not as revealing with information because she's processing that information. She, she hears it and she just doesn't know what to do with that information, which is hundred percent what a child would do. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was really well done. And I was, I was surprised by how much I actually, um, enjoyed that aspect of the book. Yeah, her her and D's have that going on the strongest, I think. Like, I don't yeah. know if she really gets, I, and as we then as kind of the audience to this, I don't know if we fully get him yet either. And so yeah. I think there's some, there could be some sinister stuff there lurking. We know he has a bit of a temper, but his relationship with women and the kind of women who come in and out of his life, like it's, she acknowledges it. I think at some point she says something directly about sex, but it, you know, I forget what age she's in, right? Fifth grade, maybe? Yeah, it, I don't think that she ever really reveals how old she actually is. But I mean, I would say middle school, it seems okay. like like early middle school, maybe sixth or seventh grade. Yeah, she's so walking you, to yeah. school by herself, too. Different time, though, for that, to be honest. Oh, that's, and in a that's different in like big cities like that, it just I think people were more little more hands off of that kind of stuff. But anyway, yeah. no, completely. I think that's a good I think that's a good way to put it. I I'm going to say two things and they're going to contradict each other and I don't care. I'll explain myself. (laughs) I think that it's essential to the narrative, its presentation, because it invites the inventiveness. Like it allows at any moment she's going to veer off and kind of like give a child's interpretation to something, mix up a metaphor or like blend a, you know, a lot of the monsters she draws in the story are just her. There's one that's like a heart with a, you know, mouth, a teeth, or it's just like she takes these ideas, feelings she has, and then turns them into these creations and stuff. And so I think it's just essential. It, it makes the story vibrant. It, it's what makes it intriguing. Like I, I don't, if this was an adult doing these things, these artistic flares, you'd be, not that it would be off-putting, but you would think, like, why are they processing the world that way? And so, mm. yeah, it's just like, okay, it's perfect. And it's also totally nonsense that a child could draw any of these. I have, I have interacted recently with like middle school age kids who are like a way above average at art, they could not draw literally one of these pictures. Like the whole premise of it is, t- is insane. <laughs> so it, it, in the one hand, it's like the most genius thing. And I think it actually works perfectly, but I also reject that a person of her age could draw literally even one of these pages is what I would say. <laughs> but I it doesn't have not even thought of that. <laughs> if, if you, if you buy into it, your brain needs five seconds to just do what I did, which is accept both of those things is true to be like, this is a genius narrative choice. It's going to lead to all this inventiveness. But then also the literal conceit of this being notebook pages, like 0% of this would actually work. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I'm sure there's art savants out there for whom that might, this might be true, but it took an adult professionally trained artist like two days for 700 per page like to you know it's just like come on this is the whole premise of this is makes no sense but it doesn't matter like that's the whole point it's fiction you jump into it you could i think if it really bugs somebody to be like well there's no way that what that you know 10 year old drew that page no way um you could just think of it like it's in her brain then it's like her imagination then then there you go then you can just read the story and enjoy it as as it is Mm -hmm. it's bothered me zero percent but there were some early pages when i just thought the uh, because you know it's like printed on notebook looking paper like lined paper and i'm like Mm -hmm. you could take that away and i'd be like a hundred percent all in on this anyway like i didn't need that one more illusion because my brain already rejects it anyway (laughs) it's like you expect me to believe this some 10 year old keeps this notebook like i again i've seen even you know in the middle school i was at like i would go into the art room often and check on what they're doing and i've seen kids who are you know even for their age like pretty strong drawers and stuff and like yeah zero percent of this is getting made by a 10 year old or 12 year old 
Yeah, I I didn't pick up on that at all. I was just like, man, this is so beautiful. And, <laughs> yeah, and I it, knew that yeah. she, it was like supposed to be Karen drawing because obviously the, the whole border is it's a notebook. And then she right. also tapes in her math test at one point and stuff. Yep, but yep. it just didn't register to me that it was like, of course, she's not going to be able to draw like that. Like. I didn't I think, even think of yeah. that. Well, and I think, too, it, it took, again, my brain wrestled with that for about a page or two. And I was like, well, this is just sumptuous and awesome. And I just I'm just going to think like, yeah, it's in her imagination then. Like maybe her drawings are 10 percent this good. But, you know, it's part of the fun. It's like, yeah, this is where I'm just riding with this story. Like it's yeah. I'll just, you know, I'll pretend it's kind of like um, I forgot what the ter- there's some academic term for this. But it's, you know, you're like playing a video game. Maybe it's a shooting game. You can get shot like a lot of times before you like, quote unquote, die. This is a weird analogy, but it's I always interpret that in a game being like I actually never got shot. Those were like warnings, quote unquote. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you just make up a fiction that makes it make sense if that it's like you invent your own little side thing just to like smooth it out for you. Because I, mm-hmm. I, if somebody like wanted to propose to me that over the course of, because so far the story has taken place over what like a month, yeah, roughly yeah, maybe like monthish, yeah. yeah, the couple weeks. You're gonna tell me a twelve year old drew all that in a month? Like, come on, you cannot accept that and then want to move ahead in this book. I just refuse <laughs> to believe that. Like <laughs> the Anka, um, the recording stuff. Like you're telling me in one night she heard the, all that recording, and then went home and drew all those pages, like seventy pages. Like, come on, <laughs> let's all just <laughs> let's get past this <laughs> narrative kind of hiccup or whatever. It, but again, it affects my reading zero percent. I've like loved yeah. you know most of all of this but yeah that i just had to get that out of my system because i it was about 10 or 15 pages in maybe when she started recreating the art she saw at museums i was like yeah okay there's no way a child would do this like not even Mm -hmm. remotely close (laughs) so especially like no internet she has no reference photos at home like literally zero percent chance there's no way like a 12 year old could do that (laughs) so Anyway, just not. I didn't even intend that as a rant, um, but I, <laughs> I just thought I'd have to say that because it was. I just think your brain needs to get over that quickly and then enjoy the ride. My surprise was not that, though. I guess I'll kind of tie it in. I just thought it was more inventive and bold than I expected, and it, it was kind of known and praised in the awards. At one was it was because it was sort of like this is a monumental achievement. This is really daring. This is really different. It's there were some famous graphic novels who said like she's invented a new language, and so it was just getting heaps of praise for originality. I I really didn't think it would be to the point where almost no two pages or frames are the same. It's like mm-hmm. every time there's different angles, there's different arrangements, there's different kind of like structures. I think of like the Anka scene in the recording when she's, it's sort of like there's a normal page of panels when she's in that car, you know, when she's like getting rescued from the Abbey. And yeah. there's it's sort of like these quick hitting, like pretty simply sketched out little drawings of their conversation. And then the next page or two, there's like a two page spread of her at the aquarium. And it's like all blue and there's these really subtle darker shaded things in the background and her face is always captured in such detail and stuff every time Anka's face is captured it's like it feels incredibly delicate and like Mm -hmm. way lighter than the rest anyway so it's moments like that where it's like not only are no two pages the same you almost cannot predict what the next page it's like flipping a page in this is unique is a very unique sensation because it's almost Mm -hmm. unforeseeable like it's very I don't know. It's very potent in that way. It's like I can see why people kind of went head over heels for it. It's like such a uh, monumental achievement. Really, it is. Yeah, it's uh, so beautifully done. Yeah, the compositions on every page, it's just 
a feat of imagination for sure. You can see this is a good book to sell the medium, to be honest with you. I can, and that's about as strong of praise as you can ever give any work of art. But mm-hmm. this is a good selling point for it just because it's, it, it's hard to find a cliche. I think there's maybe some narrative cliches we could talk through later, but it's in terms of the art and the presentation and kind of like what you expect out of, out of a comic book, quote unquote, or whatever. I don't know. I found it remarkable. It's quite an achievement, like we said. And I, you know, it's all ballpoint pen, which I don't, as the person who like makes little sketches for our Instagram, I don't like ballpoint very much, but it does allow for a little softer touch, which she uses really well. Like it's, Mm -hmm. there's times when things are really jittery and sketchy. And again, like I said, kind of over articulated and like almost overdrawn in a way. Um, but then there's real subtlety too. Again, the Anka portraits, I feel like every Anka portrait is pretty, pretty deft or subtle. Mm-hmm. So. Are the colors that she uses also ballpoint? Uh, like I'm when assuming, she does the reds and the blues? I'm assuming so because, well, I'm looking at the cover now and you can see the reds are, are um, that is hatching. Like it is line based. It's not, it's not block, blocky. But I, and like, I'm looking, I'm just flipping through pages now. This is, I should have said this up front, but this is going to be maybe the most page, like you're probably going to hear us flipping pages a good amount just to, <laughs> you know, look for images and look over things. I think it's a blend. Like I'm looking over some of, there's one here, Dread, it's one of the covers. And like the red line lines in that are clearly um hatched so that's pen but on the next page there's the there's a monster that looks more painted so i think if i had to guess a percent it's probably like 95 percent ballpoint pen and then you know some filled in stuff occasionally cool any other thoughts on the on the art presentation just up front any ways it hits you um no i'm good okay Let's move on to some motifs that matter. We're going to do a couple more segments today that are a little more deep. Every time we start a book, at least for fiction, we like to pick out some motifs that we think the book is trying to show off and impart meaning through. Amanda, why don't you start us off with your motif that matters so far? Um, I chose the visual motif of eyes and the concept of vision and seeing. Um, So the first um, example of this is... Um, Karen's mother her she goes into great detail about her mom's eye especially the green island in her mom's eye and there's like a a whole like couple of pages dedicated to that Um, there's also Mr. Chug who was the ventriloquist guy (laughs) Mm, Um, he's got the glass eye and um, there's also a scene where she goes down to ask him a question and she can feel his eye following her as she like walks away and there's like the giant eye just following her. Um, and then the story of the private eye um, with Kate Warren when she's in the cemetery after eating the pot brownie. Um, right, right. <laughs> there's like the giant eye there. And also um, the fortune teller, right, who's... Um, foreseeing things um and then when she talks about being hidden in anka's jungle which is the uh the landing in front of anka's um oh yeah um apartment is all it's like a jungle there because she loves plants so much and this is when we see mr um silver silverberg right or whatever yeah s anka's husband yeah yeah mr s he like starts choking that one lady um the only thing we see before that like in the jungle scene is we if you look very carefully um there's you can see karen's eye and that's the only thing you can see hidden in that jungle um 
and um, there's the lady who approached Anka's mother and tricked her to go to the brothel. In that scene, the lady who was like, oh, why don't you come to the brothel? Not to the brothel, but I have a place where you can um, sleep and eat for very cheap. <clears throat> and her hat decoration also looks like an eye. Oh, okay. And um, hmm. yeah. And so there's a lot of visuals um, where the focus is on the eye. I could go so on. So now, yeah, I was going to say, but, um, now that you've said 10 things, I demand synthesis now. Go ahead and weave it into a coherent, uh, <laughs> give me some coherent thesis about this, if you would. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, so I think that with, with the eye, there's um, sometimes, like with her mom, there's a sense of comfort in that. But I think that later on, there's going to be something perhaps sinister because a lot of the times when we see the eye, um, she's seeing something that is um, going to, that is like, um, what do I want to say? Uh, malicious in a way. There's something... Um, evil that's about to happen something that's not nice is about to happen um in a lot of these so i so it's like observing the the bad in the world almost is how i think of it and then there's also i pulled a quote as well um i want to be a monster and only look with my not blind eyes at the machine which is the 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 nighttime machine right Um, right. i definitely don't want the sleeves of my detective coat or anything else to get caught in the greasy clockwork of the night machine and this is from the scene where she returns home after the graveyard and sees and she sees d's having sexual relations with a girl in the hallway mm-hmm. um and she talks specifically about the night machine but she's she's talking about her eyes and the ability to look and and see past what is like perhaps um to see what is actually happening but to be able to look beyond that at what is perhaps hidden to other people's perceptions yeah and she it's part of her character's development because she's kind of you know she's maybe in a sense precocious or certainly concerned with things above her age's you know weight or something like emotional weight or something for sure and it's we know for example her childhood friendships i had to flip to um i thought there was a full page of sandy the the, her ghostly friend from kentucky is it kentucky Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Some mining. Something yeah, I th- about mining. yeah, I think it's Kentucky. Yeah. yeah, and there is a full page profile of her, and of course, there's an eyes comment where it's like her eyes are, you know, really sullen or sunken and dark, and it says the caption on mm-hmm. that page is like they always follow you. Her eyes like will always follow mm-hmm. you around because you know she's a ghost. She's I'm pretty sure she's dead and is a ghost, but I guess we'll find out by the end. Um, no, but so it's she's more open with her with her she knows she can like observe that something's wrong with sandy she's more kind to her than the classmates who just ignore her and then she has that other friend with the two kind of the big overdrawn like buck teeth or whatever i forget her name but it's like she had a true sense of what their friendship meant and she was like very open with her and maybe maybe even there was a hint of romance for her like they held hands or she wanted i think she like kissed her hand or something but was it? She wanted That's to kiss what it her was. hand like yeah. Dracula. There you yeah. go. Yeah, and but and so but her friend, of course, plays the social game at school and you know pretends not to care. It just seems like the main character is sort of more clear-eyed about the world, about relationships she wants, or sort of like just being more open about human humankind or something, human relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Any other eyes jump out other than old Sandy? I think the this for some reason the stuff that related to her school has gripped me the most. Like the the whole thing with Sandy, I think was my favorite passage. But before that, the whole Valentine's cards, like her idea for that and the drawings with that stuff, I just thought that was some of the most entertaining, kind of interesting stuff so far. Yeah, the um, I love her valentine card that she gave to everybody and they're all like ew yeah, so it's got weird. blood in it i thought that was a great yeah. idea it was kind of genius yeah i did too <laughs> so clever yeah. any other thoughts on the eyes i'm flipping as i flip back through the pages almost every monster that's presented has some intense eye action going on for sure they're always staring at the reader you know mm-hmm. they're, yeah. they're almost always drawn in sort um, of a direct profile i think is the Yeah, and the and the guy um, who, uh, the grocer who raped Anka, like he he, his eyes were the scariest as well. So he's like a real monster, and it's like dark, like no pupil. Um, and at one point, um, she used the notebook hole in the paper, the notebook hole to like draw his right eye. Mm-hmm. And then his left eye is like the the demon eye, that. but yeah, that's yeah. Good use of the that was a great use of the of the notebook conceit for sure. Best use of it. Yeah. Excellent. Well, we can I, we can easily segue into my motif because it's the the abuse of women. I wasn't quite mm-hmm. sure. I mean, the book obviously opens with the mystery being there was a, a supposed suicide with Anka, who's her upstairs neighbor in this apartment complex. So it's sort of okay. There's a hint right away that like this is going to be about how women are treated, the relationships they have. the and, and at that point, like, I don't think they present Mr. S in such a nefarious way. And even in the recording part, he's more pathetic than sort of evil seeming. Um, right. So I, it didn't jump out to me right away that that was going to be one of the main concerns of the story. But there's a couple of things that have brought this motif to the front. Again, the one I wonder the most about is with these. Because we know his fuse is short and he disagrees with his mom about some things. That's not totally atypical or, you know, something that's parent-kid relationships go that way. And he's a successful artist and he's like obviously loves his sister. That Their trips to the museums have been fun kind of little side notes in the narrative and give us a perspective on the world and how she processes the world. And sort of like she has these philosophical musings about art and stuff. Again, seems a little above her age grade uh, in- intellect level, but that's okay. It's nothing, mm-hmm. it's nothing so profound. It's just kind of, those have been great little side passages. And yet, you know, we know Dee's kind of sleeps around a lot and doesn't, and I, isn't it, didn't it say that she saw him with Anka once too? Like there was something very early. It's yep. sort of why he's a suspect in her mind. It's like, because she knows that yeah. he was with her and that they had slept together. So then, then, so that, you know, just lingers in her mind thinking like, well, could D's have something to done with this or could he have done something? So, but then of course, now that the, the cassette, like this was going to be my motif before, maybe before the cassette stuff. And now that the cassette stuff happened, I mean, it is the dominant thing. I mean, her entire, Anka's entire life is defined not even as much by the rise of Nazism, though that's a huge part of it, but by growing up around prostitution, growing up around, abusive relationships against women women who get assaulted and who are like demeaned who are both you know highly requested and are brought to fancy estates as a medicine quite a euphemism there like an all-time creepy Mm -hmm. euphemism maybe but so i just think it's one of the most dominant ideas in the book now um, there's also you know if we if we want to extend this motif and like be a little generous in its reading 
her mom is now fighting cancer that that is a, an affliction at least breast cancer that uniquely does affect women i don't know the you know I'm the, i don't know the data on this but i know that since breast cancer is such a dominant form i feel like statistically do you think women often get cancer more than men i just feel like that has to be true with breast cancer but anyway i don't want to speak out of my area of knowledge or something but it's just that's another type of assault that you know her mom is under you know they're a single family or a single parent family and that's another form of sort of the way her mom's getting abused just by the the horrors of of the world right nothing not against by a man or something but just by that relationship to her own her own body and so and i think too i wasn't it there there was a monster this might be the first pause i take to flip pages and find it but i think the the monster she meets um at the top of the stairs anka during the cassette there's a the, mm-hmm. when she's on her first sexual assignment right we we don't have to speak in yeah, the right when she's getting yeah. her first like she's getting prostituted to a man and she meets him at the top of the stairs that i think was one of the most horrifying images so far in the book yeah, yeah, that's when she met um, Schutz for the first time, and uh, the monster was like the tongue rolling down. That's what it was. The stairs. The tongue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's got to be one of the most grotesque images so far, and there's you know no shortage of them. But yeah, he's, oh, I just found it. He's kind of bent over, kind of like in a, I don't know, in a pig-like kind of a pig-like shape to him. He's kind of squat, but yeah, and he's you know covered in. I don't know, what are those, boils and or weird something? weird bumps, it looks yeah. like. Yeah, it's like gross. His tongue is polka dotted <laughs> or rotted is. or something. It has these kind of polka dot growths yeah. on it or something. And, you know, his eyes mm-hmm. are bloodshot. and everything. I just thought that was one of the clearest. Of course, in that same page, like, you know, she's throwing up on the stairs and everything. So it's maybe it was the whole scene, too, that was the most dis- disgusting so far to me. But I just thought that was one of the clearer, other than the posters, right? But in the story, in terms of the narrative in the story, that is one of the clearest like horrifyingly drawn monster so far and it's it's when she is going to really lose her innocence if she hadn't lost it by then right like just growing up the way she did and having the relationship she did with her mother and everything witnessing the things she did then it's like oh it's definitely this is it now i mean this is like the you know the worst possible version of of losing your innocence as a kid and so yeah Mm -hmm. there's a lot of this going on again i'm not sure if i'm ready to synthesize it but it's do you feel like the main character do you think the main character is aware of this motif as much as we are reading her story? Because it's she doesn't comment a lot about D's. I feel like if there were a moment when she would have more to say about it, it would be through him. And she doesn't say much about that. Yeah, I think that she probably just accepts because she's a kid that this is how it is, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, she also is abused like at school, right? She's bullied. Um, she's pushed around, um, the guys are not nice to her, the girls are not nice to her, the nuns also are not nice to her, like, it's just Mm -hmm. the, and so she gets that, and then she comes home, and, like, as long as Dee's is nice to her, I think she's like, okay, well, he's not, he can't be that terrible, but, yeah, I think that what Dee's does with the women is, like, he, he doesn't have these steady girlfriends and I'm wondering too, there's so many mysteries around D's, but, um, with when Karen makes the comment, um, about D's that his girlfriends seem to just like follow him around everywhere. And some of the comments, um, from the girlfriend when she, when she was drawing all the different girlfriends and he's got like the girlfriends tattooed on his body. Like, Mm -hmm. um, I just need some more or stuff like that. And I'm like, is he a, 
drug dealer? <laughs> like, is he getting yeah. them hooked on drugs? Because, like, they're also, like, the way that he envisions them, like, the tattoos on his body versus how she draws them. Um, it's wildly different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the images. Well, I think, yeah. too, if we're, you know, this is, we're getting her point of view on a lot of these relationships. And for her... Like you said, she frames it as sort of like, he's got something about him that women love. They can't get enough of him. I mean, that is also, especially just the sheer number of his relationships, right? Not that it couldn't be in a monogamous one versus a, you know, polygamous, whatever he's doing. But it that's just a sign of abuse, maybe, you know, that kind of attachment, right. that kind of like, and then also that he moves on seemingly so quickly. It's, I, he is an interesting figure so far. And I feel like I'm very unsettled on what to, how to read him in the narrative. You know, he's kind of a protector of Karen. Mm-hmm. He kind of, obviously, again, the museums are such nice detours in the story she's processes a lot of the world that way and the way she kind of thinks about these grand pieces of art the way she, you know she, that ties into her own drawings and stuff it's there's a lot of rich text there to dig into but then yeah there's something he's situated uh, very oddly in the story um kind of a protector but kind of has some kind of chilliness to him yeah, and 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 I remember in one of the uh, when he takes her to the art museum, and she's like um, hearing the the laughter from the cave, and she climbs into the picture, and it's D's as a child, and he's like, "I've done something bad." I was like, "What? What did he do?" And that's something that hasn't been answered yet. And I'm just like, man, and and Anka like helped him through that when his own mom didn't help him because. There was that discussion, too, and I'm just like, mm-hmm. what is going on? I love that there are mysteries within the big mystery of course. with this book as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Final reference quick on this motif, just because this was another moment that I thought the, where the art shone through and had a couple great little snapshots. When, when she has the memory of Anka wandering the streets topless, she's drunk and kind of lost, and the, those two men, they're initially drawn so creepily anyway, kind of like she has this really good way of making faces look like they're kind of melting or something when she wants, yeah. to, when she wants yeah. them to be grotesque. They get overdrawn in this way where they look almost like blobs or sphere i don't know it's all very clearly drawn but it's also just yeah it's got a melty quality to it anyway so those two creeps show up and then her mom jumps in and saves them they turn to cockroaches on the next page which is you know funny clear enough metaphor or whatever fine but the way she draws her mom then when when the when ferris wants to turn kind of a character moment on in terms of intensity she really does do those profiles well and the and the drawing just the qualities of it, the subtlety of it just completely flips. It's the, again, that quality of just, you can't predict the next page. And so it's, yep. yeah, her mom has a great little kind of angled shot up at the you know camera, whatever camera to the reader. And yeah, it's just such a nice, she looks almost kind of superhero like her pose. It's kind of like this turn. Mm-hmm. She's got kind of this tilted, like superhero look about anyway. So, you know, but that was another moment of abuse though, where the Anka was going to, they were going to try and like kidnap her basically. And so it's, right. yeah, it's become, I think probably the dominant motif. Well, other than, you know, the visual one you pointed out too. Any other, um, yeah. any other thoughts on that one? Nope. I think it's good. We'll see ultimately, I mean, however Anka's narrative resolves, right? However that mystery wraps up could have a lot to say about the, how the book treats and views that because so far it's sort of again i'm trying to put some kind of bow on this motif or something wrap it up i'm not really sure where the narrative it's definitely a survivalist kind of tale you know Mm -hmm. karen's family's just kind of surviving they're kind of getting by and so anka's tale is obviously a survivor's tale she's had to fight off you know men and other issues economic issues and so it's 
I guess we'll see where the narrative comes down on it or what kind of messages it has. So far, I'd say it's up in the air for me. Any yeah. final thoughts yeah. on the motifs or any others? No, I'm good. Excellent. Okay. Well, hopefully our descriptions of the artwork were coherent enough. <laughs> we'll, we'll try our best, you know. We've been trying. Um, we're, that was a big part of our debate was how to do graphic novels. So hopefully if you've, again, read, you are remembering a lot of these images or flipping along. Let's move now to our final couple segments, Amanda. Let's do Please Continue, Make It Stop. We've bumped this one to the ending, mostly because it feels like more of a wrap-up type of thought. Please mm-hmm. continue make it stop is, again, self-explanatory. We're going to each pick out something we've really loved, we'd like to continue, and something we haven't that we wish would stop. Go ahead with your first one, Amanda, whatever you got. Um, I'll do my make it stop first, which I, yeah. I struggled to think of something. But um, I think sometimes the transitions can be a little bit rough. Um, yes. And yeah. that might be because, maybe like stylistically she chose that because this is told from a child's perspective and children... Um, tend to go from one idea to another pretty quickly, um, uh, yeah, not caring yeah. about how they get to that thought. Um, so I flipped between two pages a few times thinking I'd missed a scene or something. Um, and and so it, it can be disconcerting just a couple of times. Overall, it yeah, flows really yeah. well, but there have been a couple of times where I've noticed that. Um, so, for example, in the final scene in the art museum with eight-year-old D's in the painting's cave, I, he, it says, oh, I couldn't yeah. help wondering, yeah, I couldn't help wondering what terrible thing kept eight-year-old D's hiding in the cave. And then you flip the page and then it's, I'm not sure why, but women aren't the same after they date D's. And so it's like eight-year-old D's and then it jumps to modern day D's. And yeah, I mean, there's like the theme of D's, I suppose, but you, she's like ending with this idea of like the child D's and there's no transition to the the modern d's from that um so so, stuff like that where i i I like checked the paper i was like did i did i miss a page like what's (laughs) what's going on but i mean that only happened a couple times yeah and in that in that same sense i'll tack on i'd alluded to this criticism early but i the movie posters or magazine poster recreation the covers whatever just don't work for me they work for me artistically like they're beautiful and often very Mm -hmm. cool and like they got a clever pun on them or they're kind of got that what's the word pulpy they've just got kind of a pulpy look they're well drawn but i i Mm -hmm. a couple on several occasions i've really purposefully stopped and have thought like okay how could this be thematically connected? Like, why is this one two Lady Draculas, but the next one was a spider and this one's a robot? Like, what are the what's going on? And I think it's just meant to be sort of chapter breaks, but those I, they don't help much. I mean, they, luckily the narrative flows well enough, usually on its own, so it doesn't really matter. But it also just I don't know. I I feel neutral about them. I, I just wish they helped more than they didn't. There's kind of a neutral entity to me in this book. I I thought that like the the little blurbs on the bottom of each of the the magazines like the the titles of each I think were monster allusions to whatever theme or idea she was creating for that particular set. Um, so the year in review that first one is like it's a um, the very first chapter uh, the year in review is the the title of it and it's the introduction to her. Um, dream and her idea of like what it means to be like she's a monster and like the introduction to her mom so it's like it's a dream sequence and stuff like that and and it's an introduction to this story so that's how I view it is the the images I think are maybe the, the visuals for those maybe are not as 
easily linked to what's happening in the in that particular like quote chapter. But I think that the titles underneath um, on the bottom of the pages, I think that they tie usually pretty well to what's happening in the story. There was one I've just been flipping through them. Uh, there was one that was about the Greek mythology and then the in Anka's recording story. We know that the the gar- was it a gardener woman or the woman who yes. ran the brothel or something? She was the cook and the had cook. her garden. Yeah. We know that she taught her things about the world and entertained her with those myths. So there have definitely been some connections. Maybe I maybe I do need to slow down on those a bit more or something or maybe think about them before I read more. I don't know. Something. I just, it's almost just a side amusement for me at this point. So I'll need to turn up my interpretations on those in the second half, I think. Maybe I've just been giving (laughs) them short shrift. Yeah. And for my Make It Stop, it wasn't that because I think they're perfectly entertaining. I just haven't found the thematic link strongly. Mine's related to yours, I think. And it's a pretty basic one. When you experiment this much, Uh, at least for me, you risk confusion as well. And I will say that some of the page layouts, because no two are very much alike, I have like misread the order of dialogue sometimes, like plenty Mm -hmm. of times at this point. So I just, I think with graphic novels, you're kind of looking for a delicate flow state because every page, you know, there's going to be a bit of a hard stop just as the person processes all the art and everything. It's graphic novels have their own kind of reading flow, I guess is what I'm saying. And this has been an odd one just because I've reread more pages than I think I normally would have to for a graphic novel. I don't think, but you know, saying make it stop feels absurd because it's also the part that makes it such a delight and such a kind of masterwork. It's there's just so much to process. So it's like, I don't want that to stop, but it was the, criticism that came to mind right away which is like i am like the sheer order of things sometimes it goes top to bottom sometimes left to right some you know it's like i don't even really know sometimes which order to take things in the text can wrap in circles and the page flips and anyway mm-hmm. i mean when you're gonna do something this bold i guess that's just part of the experiment so and thankfully it hasn't affected my appreciation or comprehension but that's definitely something that could bother somebody i bet there's somebody out there who's bothered by that yeah Yeah, it's the same way if you read manga, like, even if you know to, like, start at the back and work your way to the front, sometimes, like, stylistically, there's, like, the text will wrap around somewhere else and stuff like that, so the way that the text is presented can indicate which way, which picture you're supposed to be looking at next and stuff, so, yeah, it it can be confusing, but it's also kind of like a, a little search and find game almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think with graphic novels, you got to find your own, you got to find your own way to process them and change the way your brain reads the page, takes yeah. in the information. I'm really big when I do graphic novel, when I get to a page, I will always do the image first and I'll usually look at it for a couple seconds, not just a cursory glance. Then I'll go read. It's like, I want to know. I want to read the subtlety of the drawing before I read the dialogue, if that makes sense. That's just mm-hmm. my order of operations. But I could see how if you really want to get it going quick or you're into the flow of the conversation, you read, like, read the dialogue first. I don't know. It's, again, personal preference, I think. But, yeah, it's that's been my only kind of make it stop, which is sort of, well, this, you know, this unexpected genius work is creating, you know, problems for me to keep up with it. But that's okay. It's worth it. So, yeah. How about for your please continue? Um, I said that her metaphors are so great, both in Anka and Karen's Mm. narratives, right? So um, Anka being the adult, um, but her 
her la- so the way that she tells her story is obviously going to be different than the way that Karen does. And um, but Anka's metaphors are just as interesting and unique as um, Karen's are as a child. So um, I pulled a couple of them uh, for Anka uh, for Anka, and this is about the women of the brothel. Um, she says, they noticed me, saw my injuries, and with their loving brutality, they bit into me like fierce rasps, attempting to chew the rough bits from the wood with rows of tiny metal teeth. Um, Anka's metaphors tend to be very, um, almost like violent. Yeah. In a way. Um, and the way that, and it it indicates like a, a, a unique perspective as well. So there's always the threat of violence in, in her language, but also there's a sense of almost appreciation for that violence too. And like a sense of like how she personally grew from those injuries as well. Um, Mm -hmm. in, in, in her language. And then for Karen, um, I pulled one that said, like I said, basements usually smell like surrealism. But kitchens and gardens almost always smell like Impressionism. Because our kitchen is part of a basement apartment, it smells like the early Impressionism of Vincent Van Gogh. All big strokes of umber and ochre, a peppery, greasy, I love you smell. All those years while Anka danced and sang above us, I'd barely tasted my eggs. Instead, I'd tasted Van Gogh's starry night painting. The sad, swirling songs tasted blue and yellow, like blueberries mixed with marigolds. Um... Karen's metaphors, unlike Anka's, tend to be more dealing with, like, senses, especially with sight. Um, But there's Mm -hmm. also a lot of um, smell and taste to it. And they tend to be, like, very innocent, although, like, also weirdly knowledgeable. Like, this this example, um, she's talking about like art <laughs> she, she knows the difference yeah, between yeah. surrealism and impressionism um and and the way that she describes her her breakfast i think is just really unique but that was just an example sure. but but uh we can see that a lot in karen's metaphors as well yeah i for my please continue i put everything else so i can't i you know i copped out on that one just every, everything <laughs> <laughs> just continue it all I, but now I'm going to jump on. I did write this one down, so this is, a, again, perfect connection we made. I mm. think that the way she redraws the art and then has Karen reflect on it. Now, again, yeah. if I wanted to quibble, I would say perhaps these shouldn't be the musings of an 11-year-old. Like, I've met 11-year-olds playing Fortnite, and it's just kind of like, all right, it's not. They're not. I don't think they're t- saying that things taste like Van Gogh art or whatever. Um, but that's okay. I think given her upbringing, her relationship to D's and that influence, and also this is just her her passion. So I, it's, you know, I'm I'm okay with it. But yeah, I just think those passages have been so fascinating when she yeah muses on pointillism. Also, her worldview kind of comes down to pointillism, right? That was in the cassette episode when mm-hmm. she said, you know, it's not good or it's not like D's where it's all gray and it's not like mom, good or bad. It's all pointillism. You know, you look closely at something and you'll just see a bunch of dots interconnected dots and you can't you know you can't know something that's that complex until you zoom in on the dots kind of and so and i also just think that her recreations of this these fine arts have been really impressive and sort of you you know you look for little differences in how they've been presented or sort of the way they've been drawn there's been a couple there was the one with the woman kind of draped over the couch i forgot what that one's called but that was that's that's quite memorable yeah it was like the the demon sitting on her 
Yeah, that, that and maybe maybe yeah. the most memorable because it ties back to that motif, you know, that it's mm-hmm. this woman who you can't tell if she's in pleasure or pain or something and being tormented or not or something. So, yeah, I just think that that in a lot of the way she's done mythology too. Now, granted, that's not so much recreating art, but interpreting the myth. Anyway, I think those moments have been pretty fascinating and have given a good sense of what how Karen sees the world, how she processes things, and so. I, I think those references have all been really fun, even for somebody who's pretty ignorant about the details of art history, a lot of the specifics and the theories and everything. I don't have the mm-hmm. background or language for that kind of talk, but it's been accessible enough for me just to, you know, the way she recreates it on the page and the way Karen kind of simply connects it to her life, it has been quite enjoyable. I like, I've liked yeah, that. I agree. Yeah. Excellent stuff. All right. Final segment for today's podcast is going to be one big, bold prediction. When we are halfway through a work of fiction, we'd like to do a big, bold prediction. I don't, does it ever get better than predicting murder mystery plots, Amanda? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Or or suicide plots or however this story ends up turning out. I think it's, you know, pretty much built for it. I -hmm. will go first. I feel like I made you go first a lot today. I'll take it on first because mine's not very good. I think here, let me do two trains of thought here. I'll take them one at a time. I think if I had to like be forced to pick that it's if somebody said, hey, this was a murder, you know, I'm going to spoil that. And I, I don't know. Right. It might not be. Who knows? But if they said that to me, then I would probably put money on D's right now just because of the way he's been positioned, the kind of suspicious things lurking in the background of his story. Then again, what's the obvious thing that you could do in a narrative like this is have it not be him and his predilections or some other thing. And he's not connected to her or whatever. I really think that if. My, my simple prediction, though, is going to be this, is that it actually was a suicide, that there, you know, there are these oddities, obviously, about the case, and there's, there's like, where the gun was, when she, where she was, and there's all these logistics that don't make sense, that's obviously what piques Karen's interest, but I think... If the narrative ended with that, that Anka was just a tormented person by real and imaginary ghosts in her life and that she couldn't outlive this trauma, couldn't outrun it, couldn't couldn't move away from Europe and get away from her history and all that, and that her relationships to people were just too toxic and etc. Like, it's just a big buildup of her character being it was the world was too much and all of it was too much. I think that could be a certain type of kind of brutal ending. I mean, obviously it wouldn't... I'm not sure in the bigger genre of murder mystery if that would be satisfying it's not a genre ideal in a lot so i'm not sure if people would find that reading corny or bland or or something but i think Mm -hmm. thematically it could be interesting if that was how it decided to wrap up so for now i'm gonna go with that and just say that none of the suspects will come through and that either it'll be unresolved or that it will be just that the most simple it's kind of the Occam's razor where it's the most simple interpretation is the right one in this case. So mm-hmm. that'll be my prediction for now, though. I don't, again, the, the story is clearly setting up all these different um, suspects. So yeah, she even has a suspect list, <laughs> right? Right. Including yeah. some people from Germany that maybe have come to the States or something. Mm-hmm. Strange figures. Anyway, how about for your big, bold prediction? Um, so, I also have not completely dismissed the idea of like it being an actual suicide, especially mm-hmm. if like we seem to think that uh, Sandy is an actual ghost. So it could be also that you that know, was some a of joke. Inconsist- I, I think was, that she might. Be. I was joking. <laughs> just to be clear, <laughs> that when I said that earlier, I was joking. I think that's perfectly fine. Sorry, I just have to defend my own joke, which is poor. <laughs> but I anyway, I just need to say that. But it, please continue. If you think she's a ghost, I think that's perfectly fine. But please continue. 
But perhaps uh, a ghost helped Anka along. But that's not my prediction. Mm -hmm. Um, My prediction is that someone with a key to Anka's apartment murdered her. So I'm actually thinking, I don't think it's Mr. S, her husband, because he Mm -hmm. does seem like genuinely distraught. Um, Yeah. And I think that D's is actually going to be a red herring. Yes. Um, Yeah. Uh, so I think that it's probably either Mr. or Mrs. Gronin who are the landlords. Okay. And I, th- I think especially Mr. Gronin, because when you look at the suspect list, the way that he looks reminds me of the guy that had raped Anka as a child, the guy with the demon eyes. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, so they have some physical similarities there, and they're both really creepy looking. Yeah, um, yeah. And he's and Mr. Gronin also is like they call him Laughing Jack. And whenever somebody like if you refer to somebody as a Laughing Jack or whatever, it it seems more sinister. <laughs> so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so I I find him very suspicious. Even though and and also we haven't seen him yet as far as yeah, like her interactions. Yeah, I don't even we didn't even know that was a character, or at least yeah. I don't have any recollection of him. But mm-hmm. yeah. Right, and and that's a very like Agatha Christie esque type 100%. of thing to do, right? Hundred <laughs> percent. It's the character you only meet for five minutes in the episode, not thirty. Yeah, exactly. It's like we've got the thirty minutes with D's, but we've only had five with him comparatively. Exactly. So I think it might, it, but also it could be Mrs. Gronin um, if if Anka was having an affair with Mr. Gronin or anything right, like that. Mrs. Right. Gronin seems like she would be definitely be like the jealous type, and there was also that conversation with um karen's mom where she was just kind of like she deserved it or whatever like she was very Mm -hmm. dismissive about her death so that was a little suspicious i think thematically if it ends up being related to an affair that would be that would fit of course just given the way women have been treated the way they're having to deal with their sexual lives in this book and like if that Mm -hmm. if it becomes some complex affair some power dynamic struggle kind of a thing that would make a lot of sense thematically too i mean i think the stuff with d's is kind of hinting at that anyway since we know she had an affair with him or at least it was so heavily suggested or whatever so i think yeah i think they're priming us they uh, Ferris is priming us for that idea, getting mm-hmm. ready. And I, I agree. The D's thing, it, it's what a sucker like me, again, who doesn't dabble in the genre much, it's like what I'm being led to believe. So it's like I know more savvy readers of this stuff would be like, no, 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 it's there's no way it's going to be him. It's <laughs> There's way too much text there. It's going to be somebody way more subtle. So, uh, yeah, that's, I think, a great reading of it. Cool. Any other thoughts in terms of predictions? Nope. Okay. Any final analyses on the first half of My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris? I love it so far, and it's been such a fast read. Like, mm-hmm. oh, so, yeah. so enjoyable. Graphic so novels always are. Yeah, I, you can kind of go at your own pace with them. You kind of make your own pace. Because you can, especially in these pages, you could stare at this art for as long as you choose to. You know, you could mm-hmm. spend 10 seconds on a page. You could probably spend a minute on a page. It's kind of up yep. to you. Pick your own adventure. So... Yeah, I think justice for the ghost child, uh, I forget her, Sandy, justice for Sandy and Sandy's um, really downtrodden existence. Hopefully she finds some interesting, fun things in the back half. Uh, Nothing breaks my heart more than just a really tragic child's birthday party like that. That's just, that's, that'll break your heart right there. That's like, again, I know there were objectively more devastating things in this book, but something about that scene just, that's the one that'll sit with me for a long time. Oh, goodness. Anyway, we do have other books coming up. 
So let's talk about them quickly. We also, I should mention this, this is a more logical plug to start with. Part two of this book club will be coming out next Friday. Our book club episodes always go up on Friday, so make sure you follow our feed at the Lightly Literary Podcast and check in then. That's when we'll be discussing the kind of second half in the whole book. I think we technically went over halfway, but this was definitely the most logical stopping point in the book, so we've got about half to go. Again, we have other books coming up in order. I'm going to list them quickly here. Uh, we have the gun. The next one up is The Gunslinger by Stephen King, which is the first in a series, so we're just doing the first one. The one after that is Field Notes from a Catastrophe, Man, Nature, and Climate Change by Elizabeth Colbert. Or Colbert. And Burnt Shadows by Camilla, is it Sh- Shamsi? Shamsi? Sh- I think it's Shamsi, but I'm Shamsi? not 100%. Okay. Yeah. By Camilla Shamsi, Burnt Shadows. So those are the next three books. We're entering a fiction phase again, though Field Notes from a Catastrophe isn't, but we've got some more fiction we're working in here. We're getting back to our roots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we spent so long in nonfiction land, now we're getting back to the what we were born to do. Any final thoughts today, Amanda, before we wrap up the pod? Uh, nope, I'm good. Excellent. Well, the next time we speak, well, maybe not, this isn't true, but the next time you podcast <laughs> listeners hear us speak, we will have wrapped up this mystery. So I look forward to talking to you about it then. And until that time or next time, we'll see you between the pages. 